Live from MBA's Secondary and Capital Markets Conference and Expo in New York City, welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include chatter at the conference, my interview with Rita Sharaf, U.S. Real Estate Services and Res.net Systems on REO inventory, the end of moratoriums, and the restart of evictions and foreclosures, and a look at the Fed's taper of MBS purchases. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Candor. With Candor at the core, the market cycle will not dictate your profits. With Candor's machine as an underwriter, lenders modernize their manufacturing infrastructure, making them immune to margin, capacity, and staffing challenges forever. Candor's AI solution can be deployed in 30 days, delivering fast and flawless loan production. Plenty of capital markets, folks, senior management, and the usual cadre of vendors are here in Manhattan doing the Macarena until 2 a.m. Okay, just kidding. They're actually talking about some pretty serious stuff. For example, I heard from MCT that we are seeing from our clients that current market roll costs and the ultimate effects on execution are the biggest concerns for secondary marketing heads. Trying to wring every basis point out of a loan or servicing sale is another topic. Small Steps by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are having some positive impacts while they continue to manage credit risk and use pricing as a tool to guide business. Agency shifts will continue, and some of the talk includes policies about including rental payments in the credit decision, helping the green channel with policies regarding solar panels, affordable housing programs, protecting borrower information, and the impact of climate change on pricing and policies. Stay tuned. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show, Rita Sharaf, who's an experienced senior executive, consultant, and active thought leader specializing in multiple facets of the real estate and specialized loan servicing industries. He is skilled in default asset management and servicing, collateral risk assessment, liquidation solutions, and overall business operations and strategy. His primary focus and interest is on servicing and product efficiency, ROI maximization, joint venture opportunities, and M&A activities. As the industry wrestles with imminent changes, which are rife with challenges, U.S. Res and its wholly owned fintech subsidiary, Res.net, are prepared to provide proven, efficient, and cost-effective solutions. With almost 30 years of experience and a team of industry-recognized subject matter experts, U.S. Res and Res.net have a number of default portfolio services and products that have been tested over the course of almost three decades of real estate cycles. If default loan management is the hill you have to climb, U.S. Res and Res.net is the expert guide you need. Contact Rita Sharaf at rida.sharaf at usres.com for further information. US Res is coming up on a significant anniversary. What would you say is the key to this longevity? There's multiple factors to our longevity in, in the industry. You know, I think number one, we've always paid really close attention to our customers' experiences, um, how they are interacting with our staff, how our products and services are meeting um, their requirements and guidelines. You know, another thing that really comes to mind is the dynamic nature of the relationship with a lot of our clients and riding the challenges, you know, the ups and the downs, whether they're scaling up or scaling down and offering complementary services to accommodate that. We've you know been in business for almost 30 years now, and we've had clients um, work with us for almost 20, 25 years. 
And I think that's, you know, really listening in and meeting their, their ever-changing needs is probably the most uh, important factor, I would say. Being in the business for that length of time, US Res has been able to see multiple real estate cycles. And we're in the, the not so glamorous side of one right now or the start of one. Are there any signals in the current market that are different from previous cycles we've seen? I think that every cycle has really unique factors, right? Um, from a macro view, it, it, they're going to look similar in, in the terms of economic disruption, but you know the the genesis of them is is quite unique. And you know the 2008 crisis being in the not so distant past, a couple of things jump out to me. First, the incredible amount of equity. Um, that is built into the market now. Um, so even if some borrowers are in distress, you know there are they're still they still maintain a level of equity that can buffer that. That along with you know the persistent supply shortages. Second and unique to this cycle is government um, intervention, um, stepping in to place moratoriums and extending those moratoriums. So. You know, we're really not sure how that uh, backlog and uh, is going to kind of fare out into the industry. So it'll be interesting to see how the new normal looks. Let's get back to those moratoriums in a second. But first, I want to ask you, during the 2007-2008 financial crisis, U.S. Res managed a significant REO inventory. What important lessons can be gleaned from that experience that may be applied today? I think, you know, during that time, we, we got up to about an average of 30,000 um, assets that we were managing. You know, one of the things that I noticed was the kind of change in business model and philosophy on how to manage these giant REO inventories. Um, you know, traditionally, there's been an asset manager, manager model that it's, it's one asset manager that handled the bulk of all the work on these properties. And as these inventories grew, it became very apparent that that model wasn't really scalable to handle giant inventories. And it needed to be uh, changed into a more segmented model with expertise in each area. So a title person, a closing person, a listing, you know, uh, an offer negotiation person. And, you know, second to that was the extreme need for transparency, which, you know, really didn't come about. I think there was a fair amount of uh, blurring before the 2007 crisis. There wasn't really uh, technology that was um, dedicated to connecting those dots and showing transparency to the servicers and, you know, importantly, the investors of those loans. So let's get back to moratoriums and foreclosures. With the Biden administration placing an end on moratoriums, the restart of evictions and foreclosures that were in progress before the moratoriums were set are first to market. How has that inflow affected the industry? From my perspective, it's been extremely minimal because the inflow really hasn't opened up yet. The moratoriums being extended and we just you know ended those extensions, but there's still a fair amount of apprehension, I think, from servicers and investors about moving forward um, with foreclosure starts, I think for a number of reasons, I think, you know, we live in an environment where everything is highly scrutinized. So, 
you know, moving to foreclose on borrowers is controversial. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is that even though the national moratoriums are, you know, ending, um, there's still some state-specific programs that are helping borrowers to kind of quill that foreclosure um, action. And so we haven't really seen inflow, but it seems like there's a lot of backup there, um, you know, especially if we go back before the pandemic, you know, and look at those numbers of foreclosures that were in process and, you know, REOs that were already in the REO status. So it, it's it's tricky to kind of quantify how and when and to what end the inflow is going to be into um, the REO you know, world and foreclosure loss, default management world, I should say. As new foreclosures continue to increase, do you think that the industry is adequately prepared for a potential wave of properties into the market in the latter half of this year, third quarter and fourth quarter? You know, again, I think that's a tough question. I think that there's been a reduction in, um, you know, default management staff and specialties. And a lot of them has, have been transitioned to more loss mitigation action to try to help borrowers through. Um, again, you know, I think one of the most uh, relevant things is that transition from a very small department to a large task-oriented staff that specializes in many different areas and is able to efficiently move these properties through the cycle and liquidated um, without sitting on them, uh, accruing, you know, these reoccurring costs and holding costs. And then also, creating potentially adverse marketing qualities in those local neighborhoods. If you have a house that's been sitting there vacant for a while, it tends to start, you know, negatively um, affecting things around it. So, you know, are we prepared? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I do know that we have the tools, we have the technology um, as an industry to be able to move fairly quickly to um, take on the, the challenge. That's a great way to put it. Rita, thank you for making the time and coming on to talk to me. I enjoyed this. Appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Robbie. And I look forward to talking again. Obviously, a big discussion point here in New York is interest rates. The end of a chaotic week last week saw some soothed, frayed nerves, thanks to a little help from various Fed speakers who indicated bigger rate hikes are off the table for now, including reassurances from Fed Chair Powell, that bigger rate hikes are not in the Fed's plans for the next two meetings. He did add that if data turns the wrong way, the Fed is prepared to do more. The overall tone was hawkish, and Treasury yields pulled back to end the week, though the 10-year yield ended the week down 18 basis points from where it began. Last week's reading on consumer inflation showed prices increased at 8.3% for the preceding 12 months. While this is a small decline from March's data, it was still above analysts' estimates and was still very elevated. Cost pressure is also abound for businesses. Producer prices were up 11% over the last year, and 70% of businesses reported raising prices in April to combat higher input prices. A quick reminder that the Bureau of Labor Statistics approximates home price changes within CPI in a manner known as Owner's Equivalent Rent, or OER. OER attempts to capture price changes by asking homeowners what they think their home's potential rental price would be. In the past few years of outsized home price changes, means CPI fails to accurately account for it. That is not helpful for the FOMC in attempting to determine its stance on monetary policy. 
Despite consumer sentiment falling in May to its lowest level since 2011 due to inflation dimming views on the economy, consumer demand remains strong. Consumers expect prices to rise 5.4% over the next year, holding at a four-decade high, and their view of their current financial situation is at its lowest reading since 2013. Higher prices, higher interest rates, and a significant stock market correction led to 47% of consumers saying they feel worse off financially than one year ago. Many hope that inflation has peaked and the economy will gradually slow while avoiding falling into recession. Last week saw $30.2 billion mortgage-backed securities submitted for sale by originators, with the Fed purchasing $9.7 billion of that. 68% was in UMBS 30s, 11% in UMBS 15s, and 21% in Gini 2s. This week sees the desk purchasing up to $8.2 billion over 10 operations. The New York Fed released the latest agency MBS purchase schedule through May 26, the fifth consecutive schedule that will not see any net additions to its balance sheet, and we will soon see reduction due to roll-off. Today, the desk will purchase up to $1.7 billion across UMBS and Gini 2, 30-year 3.5% through 4.5%. The Fed holds between 40 and 50% of the 2 and 2.5% UMBS 30-year securities in the market. That number decreases as you go up the coupon stack, with the Fed holding 14% of the outstanding 4.5% coupon. As we approach the beginning of the Federal Reserve's third attempt to go back to an all-treasury balance sheet, it is important to remember that the Fed has absorbed a massive $2.7 trillion of agency mortgage bonds, leaving far less for private investors. This week's economic calendar includes several housing-related releases in addition to retail sales, industrial production and capacity utilization, business inventories, regional Fed surveys, and leading indicators. Treasury will auction $17 billion of 20-year bonds on Wednesday, followed by $14 billion of reopened 10-year tips on Thursday. Today's calendar includes the release of Empire Manufacturing for May, remarks from New York Fed President Williams, who will moderate a discussion before the aforementioned MBA Secondary Conference, and March tick data from the Treasury. After Friday saw Fed Chair Powell's remarks calming markets, we begin the week with agency MBS prices, a little change from Friday, and the 10-year yielding 2.92 after closing last week at 2.94%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. I was in a taxi last night here in Manhattan, and the driver asked, do you mind if I put some classic rock music on? I said, not at all. He said, kiss? I replied, let's listen to the music first, and then see how we feel. Thanks again to Candor. With Candor's machine as an underwriter, lenders modernize their manufacturing infrastructure, making them immune to margin, capacity, and staffing challenges forever. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.